This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Colfax Avenue on the eastern edge of Denver is lined with car dealerships, motels, parking lots, and bodegas. It's a stretch that could soon go from scruffy to spiffy when a bus rapid transit line starts running in a few years. CPR's Allison Sherry reports on how Denver is trying to get this neighborhood transition right. Playboy magazine once called Colfax the longest, wickedest street in America. It's hard to summarize what it has grown into in the decades since that article, as surrounding neighborhoods have been transformed by rapid growth and gentrification. There are knots of breweries, ethnic restaurants, and family-owned shops. But there are also run-down, desolate stretches, where the charm gives way to open, treeless asphalt that city officials think could be used for affordable housing. Denver City Councilwoman Mary Beth Sussman has a word for these sections of Colfax. It's toothless, and so it becomes less appealing. When you say toothless, do you mean like buildings are teeth, and so then if you have these holes or these pockets, kind of like having no teeth? Having no teeth, right. But what Sussman sees as a gap, Rick Stevenson sees as a livelihood. He has a used car dealership right on the corner of Newport and Colfax. He likes the location because it's high profile, even though he sells the bulk of his cars online these days. But he's worried the city's plans to spruce up Colfax will push him out. The problem with any time they have a vision, what they want to do is they want to take property from the landowner and make the existing businesses have less room, which is a negative in my opinion. The tension between people like Stevenson and Sussman is rising because this stretch of East Colfax is about to dramatically change. The city plans to add a bus rapid transit line in the next three to five years. That's a dedicated bus lane with some of the speed and regularity of a train. Advocates for affordable housing and smart development worry it's already too late for the avenue's current occupants. Monica Martinez runs the Fax Partnership, an organization helping the city figure out how to increase affordable housing on Colfax. Back behind us, the old Compton Mart was purchased by Pablo's Coffee. They're going to use it as their roaster. Driving down East Colfax with Martinez is a glimpse into how developers may view the future here. Her nonprofit is in a race against the private market to preserve affordable housing. Look at this. This Is is this all vacant? Well, it looks like a bank just acquired this. We're looking at an old one-story multiplex fronted by a chain-link fence and a just-purchased sign. This might be the beginning of investors coming in, and that's what makes our work so urgent. Um, I I need to find out who bought that, but I'm imagining it's an investor who's going to put some money into it, spruce it up, And, you know, what happened to those people that used to live there? Martinez is helping the city get to these old buildings and vacant properties before the private developers. The idea is either to have the city buy them and build affordable housing units or lure developers through incentives to do it themselves. But Martinez says that work needs to happen now. Studies have shown that if you don't do preservation prior to a transit investment, what will happen is the transit investment will displace the low-income residents with higher income residents who then don't use the transit. City officials acknowledge how difficult it is to do everything in the right order. The new light rail station and development around the National Western Stock Show has caused heartache among low-income neighbors who fear being pushed out. This is something they are actively trying to avoid on East Colfax. They want low-income people like Devitt Young to move up instead of being forced out. The motel where Young lives is affordable, even though he never meant to be there this long. I had separated from my wife, and I needed a room to stay. So from there, 
I'm paying every day. I'm paying every day. So you have to get out and hustle every day just to get your rent. So you get stuck into this rut. City and neighborhood advocates admit they face a challenge as they race against an unfettered and quite enthusiastic private market. They must balance people who sell cars and people who live in motels with the promise of a new landscape, with a new bus line that could bring people who never go to Colfax there for the first time. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. That's the present and possible future of Colfax Avenue, but Colfax also has a rich past, and its history fascinates Johnny Barber of Denver. That's why he and his wife started a website to share that history with others. And Johnny, welcome to the show. Uh, Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You and your wife started the website colfaxavenue.com in 2004. You found some of the information on Colfax's history through the internet, but also through the Denver Public Library, the Aurora History Museum, community members, and and lots of other sources. Let's start by going way back to the mid-1800s when gold was discovered in Denver. Who was using the road back then? Well, originally, uh, it was known as the Smoky Hill Trail, and it was uh, a route from Kansas City out to not only the Rocky Mountains, but also turned north to the Oregon Trail and then to the Santa Fe Trail. So you had, I, I would suspect, uh, you know, some of the Padres or Father Escalante or one of the early explorers probably used it, and it was uh, an ex- extensively used by the Native Americans in the area, too. It was a, a tribal uh, pathway to get to the hills. And Colfax, by the way, is the longest commercial street in the country. In the past, it was called Golden Road and then Grand Avenue. And then it was renamed in honor of Schuyler Colfax. He was actually an Indiana congressman, served as the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. And he would also serve as Vice President to Ulysses S. Grant. Why was a Colorado road named after him? Uh, interesting question. Um, Schuyler Colfax was actually a close friend of Abraham Lincoln and um, was involved in a lot of the post-Civil War reconstruction. And uh, I believe it was actually the day that Lincoln was assassinated that he attended Ford's Theater um, and and, uh, met his end there in the theater. But he he had met with Schuyler earlier that morning to Mm -hmm. talk about uh, actually coming out and, and looking at the mineral, you know, the gold and silver uh, in the mountains, because basically the U.S. government was broke after the Civil War. Hmm. They were trying to figure out how they could replenish the, the coffers. And also it was, what do we do with all these soldiers returning from the war and how do we get them jobs and get them moving forward? And so um, they sent Schuyler out west uh, 1865 to do kind of a recon trip. And uh, his niece actually also lived in Denver, so we had a reason to visit his relative. And um, I think the street was renamed in 1868 is when it actually took on the name for Schuyler. But a lot of towns and counties and things at that time were named after him. There's a Colfax County, New Mexico. There's a Colfax, Washington, a Colfax, California. You know, so uh, there's actually a Colfax Avenue in Los Angeles and a Colfax Avenue in Memphis and all these kind of places where you know, he traveled to get out west. Some say that um, they named the road after him, hoping flattery would help uh, Colorado achieve statehood or the area yeah. achieve statehood. D- is that the case? Well, you know, that's what I've I've heard anyway. But, uh, you know, they weren't in any hurry, I guess, because, I mean, 
Colorado didn't actually become a state for maybe a, another decade and a half or something like that. So, but it probably had something to do with it. You know, maybe Skyler would have some pull for us. But then another part of his trip was, you know, they knew once they got the gold out and silver out of the mountains, they had to transport it somehow. And so he had a, a big part in the uh, Transcontinental Railroad being completed. And uh, the terminus in California, that's why it was named Colfax, California. Mm. And then he was later actually implicated in the credit mobilier scandal, which was involving stock uh, given to politicians and land grab kind of thing uh, around the railroad. Uh, although he only received, I think it was $1,200, which, you know, that's a, a, a tidy sum in, in 1850, but still not enough to, you know, make him this this out to be this uh this his career ending uh outlaw or whatever he was mm-hmm. but um uh Schuyler really was a an amazing politician and digging into his history you know you you hear so much about the scandals he was involved in that you forget that he had a lot of political integrity and he really had an amazing career like for example he was the Speaker of the House when uh, the 13th Amendment was mm. ratified and his signature was the final signature on the 13th Amendment freeing the slaves. Mm. And so he was always, uh, I mean, just an abolitionist his his whole life and, and got a lot of his early political start in, in Kansas and Missouri and a lot of the swing states that hadn't really decided on uh, the slavery issue yet. And so he was out there telling everybody, you know, no, but... But uh, I, I thought that was amazing. And then the fact that, that the street Colfax is used for a lot of protests and a lot of political things and a lot of things around freedom and, you know, that kind of use. So. I understand early on um, having a Colfax Avenue address came with a lot of prestige. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was well because it was right behind the, the Capitol. And so you had a lot of these uh, major mining interests. You had uh, uh, the the the... Uh, founder of the you know, Rocky Mountain News had a mansion there. You had, uh, you know, it was the address actually at one time. So it did. Did it look like a road just lined with mansions? Yeah, and, and really wide street and and kind of sidewalks and a lot of trees and and uh, you know and then it, it eventually they introduced trolley cars and started introducing. Um, you know, like it was a big public outcry when the first apartment building showed up mm. on Colfax. They were like, there goes the neighborhood. You know, we've now got a, uh, a commercial. And when commercial things started popping up, you know, and, and that's when a lot of those wealthy uh, landowners moved to Millionaire Row on Humboldt Street and a lot of things over by Cheeseman and kind of in the suburbs at that time. And and that was due um, in part to the silver crash of 1893. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And that, that uh, made a lot of those mansions actually have to be converted to apartments. And, and you know, they made one uh, single family dwelling into, you know, eight different apartments or what have you. And um, from Denver, uh, Colfax continues east into Aurora and then west into Lakewood. At the turn of the century, a trolley was built along the street. And I wonder how that transit system shaped the cities of Aurora and Lakewood. Well, uh, Aurora was originally called Fletcher. And um, the town was basically could only exist because of the trolley car. I mean, if it didn't have that system to get people back and forth and the original trolleys, I mean, some of them were actually horse drawn, you know, um, Mm. but that, that transit, um, that's basically, yeah, how the town was born. And then the big problem that Aurora faced, 
uh, well, the reason it became Aurora is because, uh, you know, Fletcher um, got involved in some scandals with the uh, water rights. Mm. And, and water rights is a big issue for Aurora and certainly for cities that are further out on the plains. And uh, so... So they know, changed the name. Yeah. So the the public was like, you know, we are no longer Fletcher and, and renamed it Aurora. Um, and then, you know, Lakewood didn't really even come into being till I think, uh, what, 1969. So Lakewood was always really just viewed as a western suburb of Denver mm-hmm. for, you know, most of its existence. And then in the 1950s, uh, Colfax underwent another big transformation. It became more common for people to own cars. And how did that affect the street? Oh, it changed everything. I mean, I like to say people... Um, I guess people in conspiracy circles, you know, hold this idea that that, you know, somehow it was uh, Goodyear or, or car companies or something that, you know, got rid of the trolleys and hear all these stores Well, they came in and tore out the trolleys. And that's that's just not really true. It's it's that the American public fell in love with cars in a big way and they just stopped riding public transit as much as they people used to. People wanted that flexibility. People wanted cars, right? right? And then so that just reshaped. Uh, the whole street, and certainly when it became in 1926, it became a part of Highway 40, so which was a coast to coast highway. So it was great. You could tell somebody, you know, if they asked directions to New York, you could say, "Go to Colfax, take a right." Mm-hmm. You know, you want to get to San Francisco, go to Colfax, take a left. Um, and and so when and it that, was called the Gateway to the Rockies. Gateway to the Rockies, yeah. Yeah, because uh, I mean, and, and then when when all that uh, coast to coast traffic was coming in, especially post World War II, there was that major boom to, you know, get out and get on the open road and have this adventure and everything. And 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 Colfax was like a was like a the Las Vegas Strip or something. It just had all kinds of neon and and things to bring travelers in off the road, you know, and swimming pools and supper clubs and U-shaped motels, right? And just and and just tons and tons of motels, obviously, and anything to cater to the tourist traffic coming through. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Johnny Barber. Since 2004, he's run ColfaxAvenue.com. The website's devoted to the history and culture of Colfax Avenue, which runs through Golden, Lakewood, Denver, and Aurora. As we said, Colfax has gone from affluent homes along the roadway to a place bustling with tourism. Then it gained a much grittier reputation for things like drugs and prostitution. Playboy magazine called it the longest, wickedest street in America. What happened? I like to call it the longest, wickedest, as in awesome street in America. Um, well, what happened, uh, a, a number of factors, the biggest one being the uh, creation of the interstate system. They, they created uh, US-6 and uh, I-70 to the north. And once that diverted all that tourist traffic off, you know, you have all these businesses that just, you know, the, the, the traffic dried up. Then an, uh, another major blow was actually when they moved the airport because you had Stapleton Airport still serviced uh, a lot of those motels that were close by to the airport. Um, so, yeah, it's like what do you do if you're running a motel and there's no tourists? You know, mm. all of a sudden you're catering to short-term rentals or people that are, you know – uh, really short, you know, by the hour rentals and things like that. And, uh, yeah, it just took the life out of the street and, and started, um, 
uh, reputation for drugs and prostitution and, and all these things going on that uh, they're just kind of maybe getting over today. In 2005, about a year after you began your website, the city of Denver, for the first time, adopted a main street zoning designation along Colfax. And the goal was to make the street more walkable, um, entrances and windows on the street um, gave it a more main street feel. Um, And you've lived near Colfax for years, played as a musician in a lot of venues there. What kind of changes have you seen uh, in the last 15 years? Oh, wow. I mean, uh, just amazing changes. I mean, let's say even in the last, really the big turnaround was when the Bluebird Theater was um, reconditioned. And I mean, it used to be an old porno theater and used to just have, you know, prostitutes all over the in the front and and just really, really seedy place. And then, um, you know, Chris Swank and um, and Evan Deckman and some investors came in. I mean, it, it shows you, you know, what happened in the area when I think they bought the Bluebird for 130000 or 125000 you know what I mean, which is just, which is nothing compared to what the real estate is now. But, but I mean, when we first moved to Colfax, you could buy an old Victorian mansion right off the street for $100,000, and they were just giving them away, and no one was taking them. I mean, because right. it was really pretty rough down there. Yeah. And um and of course I mean that's what really attracted me to it was was the grittiness and was the fact that you know you could see where someone like Jack Kerouac who who talks about Colfax and on the road mm-hmm. um mentions it you know quite a few times and you could see where a writer like that or a beat oriented writer would just have so much to to experience and write about you know I understand you also have some very interesting memories of Colfax while working as an Elvis impersonator. Um, will you share one of those memories? Oh, man. Well, um, I mean, uh, Elvis himself actually spent some time on Colfax. I have it uh, on good authority from Sid King, who used to run the uh, Sid King's Crazy Horse, you know, which was a famous topless establishment mm-hmm. down there that Elvis visited there at one time. And uh, and actually, there was a, a Denver police officer that was killed in the line of duty uh, on Colfax, and Elvis found out about it and actually donated the money to build the Denver Police Department, their gymnasium, which was pretty amazing. And so I don't know how I fell into the Elvis gig. That's a whole other story. But uh, I can see a little but, resemblance. But yeah, right, right. I, I'm, I'm kind of out of character right now. But, but you know, they called me the Velvet Elvis because they said, you know, it's not so much you look like Elvis as you do a painting of Elvis. And so uh, <laughs> I started doing this Elvis act. And, and one day I was, I was down visiting Sean, uh, who runs the Fillmore Auditorium, and we were doing an interview. And I, I walked out on the street in my full Elvis regalia and uh, this just crazy uh, uh, homeless guy. I mean, he, and he was really big and strong and kind of burly, you know, and he, he saw me and he came over and asked me for a dollar or something. I said, sure. And when I went back for my wallet, he just reached around me and put me in this just, you know, headlock that I could not get out of. I mean, <laughs> he was just, just superhuman strength, you know, and, and, and I'm just looking at him going like, what? You know, and he says, he's like, listen, Elvis, you know, if you sing me a song, I'll let you go. And, I, and I'm like, really? That's that's it. And so what I'm, I'm thinking, what do I sing? This guy like, please release me. You know, came to mind. 
Uh, but, you know, he wanted to hear In the Ghetto. So I, I gave him a rendition of In the Ghetto, and true to his word, he let me go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much. Johnny Barber runs ColfaxAvenue.com. He and his wife are also at work putting together a Colfax Avenue museum. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. The so-called Amazon tax is now in effect in Colorado. Starting July 1st, companies that don't collect sales tax from consumers who buy online are required to send their sales tax data to the state. And people who shop online are supposed to report taxes they owe on those purchases. This is all happening now because back in December, the U.S. Supreme Court let stand a Colorado law that requires online retailers to tell customers what they owe in state sales tax. At the time, my colleague Ryan Warner talked with Lynn Granger, a spokeswoman for the Colorado Department of Revenue, about what it means for consumers and for the state. Lynn, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So first, this all stems from a law that state legislators passed in 2010, right? That's correct. Yeah, and the 2010 law is actually a reporting law and is designed to increase compliance with the use tax law that has actually been on Colorado books since about 1937. Ah, I see. So this uh, long predates the Internet. But in 2010, essentially, lawmakers said online retailers, and perhaps you can tell us which ones, Uh, be more specific about that, uh, must report to customers, gosh, this is how much you owe in tax and it's your responsibility to pay, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And those are online retailers that don't have a presence in Colorado, bricks and mortar, is that right? That's correct. Okay. And um, this is a state tax, to be clear? It is, yes. No. And compliance with it was just not very high. That is to say, people were buying stuff online from a retailer like Amazon. That's the one most often identified and simply weren't paying it. Yeah, I think it was just a lack of knowledge, really, that the, that this was a requirement. So, um, again, this has been on the book since 1937, um, but uh, the purchases could be made prior to that, you know, by mail, telephone, and now we're just seeing more frequently those online purchases. Um, and so we, you know, had that 2010 law um, for reporting, and we also uh, made it a little easier for people to report their consumer use tax. How so? So, um, so, of course, you know, the Colorado Department of Revenue is um, dedicated to assisting our customers in complying with state's laws, rules, and regulation, and also making that compliance as convenient as possible. So, to that end, there are actually three ways for taxpayers now to remit consumer use tax, and one of those is actually new uh, for the 2015 tax year uh Folks could remit that on remit that tax on their individual income tax form. Um, they can also use the department's free revenue online service, which is available at www.colorado.gov/forward/slash/revenue. Or the consumer use tax actually has its own Department of Revenue form, which is Form 0252. That's also available on our website. So. Again, three ways for uh, Colorado taxpayers to remit that consumer use tax. Form 0252, my favorite form. Kidding. Uh, Why would people do this? In other words, is there anything, you know, are there any teeth here? 
Well, so currently, um, this is self-reporting. So there is a requirement for taxpayers to self-report their consumer use tax currently. So you're putting faith in people to do this and to pay the state? Currently, yes. Right. So that could change, it sounds like. It could. Okay. And let's say I have been buying stuff online, or as you say, even by phone for years. Do I have a responsibility as a consumer to kind of pay the the back tax on all of that, or do you just think this is about something moving forward? Well, again, it's a it's a self-reporting requirement currently. Okay. So I think you're opening the door for people to be retroactively and proactively honest. Could I say that? Yes. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I just bought, for instance, some silly gifts online for friends, blankets that make them look like mermaids. So they have little fish tails on them. What, what should I do with that purchase as a consumer in Colorado right now? Sure. So again, uh, three ways to remit that sales tax. So it's a 2.9% sales tax. Um, And if you've got that purchase and you calculate the 2.9% that you would owe, then you can go, you know, again, to one of those three options, the DR form or online um, when it's time for you to file uh, in January um, and remit that tax. Okay. Even with the injunction in place, you're suggesting that people take those steps. Absolutely. You know, we we really want to give our brick and mortar stores, um, you know, a a fair playing field here in the state. So I think we absolutely encourage folks to to, um, self-report their consumer use tax. Okay. I just realized if my friends are listening, they now know what they're getting for the holidays. But um, (laughs) do you think this is a game changer for the state budget? Um, you know, again, we're we're taking a look at it. I mean, Colorado did estimate in 2010 that it um, lost or and will continue to lose about 20 million each year um, in non-reported uh, consumer use tax. Um, and the the losses in 2012 were estimated to be around 170 million. So, um, yeah, I do think that's pretty significant. Lynn, thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely, thanks for having me, Ryan. Ryan Warner spoke with Colorado Department of Revenue spokeswoman Lynn Granger last December. Beginning this month, companies that don't collect sales tax from people who buy online are supposed to send their sales data to the state. Consumers will get notice at the time they buy that sales tax collection is coming and another notice in January from retailers where they spent $500 or more. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. Now we're going to look into the world of fiery forges and sharp blades. Southern Colorado metalsmith Craig Barr recently competed in the History Channel show Forged in Fire. It's sort of like a top chef for metalsmiths. Bladesmiths, welcome to the forge. You're here to engage in three rounds of edged weapon-making competitions specifically designed to test every aspect of your skills. At the end of each round, you'll be presenting your work to our panel of expert judges. They're the ones who decide whether or not you walk out of here with 10 grand in the title. The four competitors had to start by forging an Asian weapon called a karambit. One of the judges demonstrated how the blade is easily concealed for close combat. Karambit is most commonly held underhand. It's got a point so that you can thrust with the blade. The inside curve is going to be sharpened so I can cut. And finally, the outer curve is also going to be sharpened so you can lacerate this way. 
They had just three hours to forge a karambit from a piece of thick coil spring. Barr, who never had made one before, won the competition. And Craig, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I watched as you beat out three competitors and noticed you kept cool under fire, so to speak. You had to heat that piece of coil spring to reshape it into a blade. At one point, you heated up the coil so it glowed orange, and you accidentally dropped it on the dirt floor, and the judges noticed. I like it when the steel's so hot it catches dirt on fire. (laughs) (laughs) So how hot was it? Uh, It was probably close to 15, 1,600 degrees. And Yeah, pretty hot. (laughs) I think the floor was probably a little bit dirty. You know, it's a concrete floor, but, you know, whatever's down there that's combustible, it's going to (laughs) go. And the dirt actually catches on fire. And this blade-making process is called forging. What does that mean? Uh, That means heating the metal up to a a temperature where it becomes uh, sort of like plastic, and then you can move it by force, you know, with a hammer blow or, uh, you know, add some power tools there, press or a power hammer. So you're you're actually, in this case, starting with this really thick coil and getting it down to a, a sharp knife. Uh, that's not easy, watching you guys do this. No, no. Yeah, it's a challenge, you know, especially when you're in somebody else's shop, <laughs> you know. Right, you're, you're in a studio. Tools. Yep. Making mm-hmm. a weapon out of an automotive spring like thick coiled metal um, from a car surprised me. How unusual is that? It's not unusual at all because uh, most of the steels that uh, are used in the auto industry have enough carbon in them to make uh, quality knives. So Hmm. leaf springs, coil springs, axles, things like that make great knives. And you heat the metal and pound it into shape with the tools that they supplied. You normally work at your own Deer Mountain Forge near Cotopaxi, about 75 uh, miles west of Pueblo. But for the show, you had to work in an unfamiliar forge, as you said. Plus, you were sharing it with three other competitors. What was it like? It was pretty tough. I mean, you know, there was enough tools there for everybody to have, you know, uh, there was no, you know, you weren't for, competing over to use them, a tool. right? Right, yeah. But it's still, though. I mean, you're in, like you say, it's everything's in a different position than it is in my shop, and anvils at a different height. The hammers were different. It, it's kind of uncomfortable. But if you fight through it, I mean, and you've got enough experience, you can pull it off. Describe what it's like to be in a forge. Uh, it's usually quite hot and dirty and loud. <laughs> you know. And so. you're you're only wearing glasses for protection, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, generally you'd probably wear a, some sort of uh, particle mask, you know, but, uh, you know, it's a show, so they don't want everybody covered up so much that you can't see them, um, I'm sure. I mean, that just, that's just coming from me, not them, so. <laughs> and, and is it loud in there, too? Oh, definitely, yeah. The, the forges uh, roar and people are hammer, hammering on metal, uh, the anvils. Uh, certainly make noise on the power hammers and uh, you name it. Yep. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with metalsmith and blade maker Craig Barr of Cotopaxi in southern Colorado. He recently won an episode of the History Channel's Forged in Fire. During the show, the four of you are working near each other, and there are a lot of sparks flying and lots of hot metal. Working with all of this, uh, the machinery, the blades, can be really dangerous. What's the worst injury you've had? 
Oh boy. You know, uh, working in my own shop, probably, I don't know how many years ago it was three, five years, something like that. Anyways, I was, uh, uh, finishing up a grind on a tomahawk that I had forged and the machine caught it. It came around and it, on my left hand, it just about took probably, I guess two of them just about clean off my fingers. And, uh, of course it, the bone stopped it, but they were the tendons were cut and they were hanging down and blood was working all over the place. <laughs> Did you ever consider it. giving up the profession after that? No, no, it, it, you know, I've been cut before. So, I mean, and it was my own fault, right. something that you do repetitively over and over and over. And then all of a sudden you make one mistake and you pay for it. For the last part of the Forged in Fire competition, you and the other finalists were sent back to your home forges. You each had to make a macraca. It's a sickle-shaped African sword about 19 inches long, and they were used in the early 1800s often to decapitate an enemy during battle. The cutting edge is on the inside of the deep curve, and you only had five days to make this weapon. Once again, you'd never made one before. On day three, you tested the sword you were working on and what happened uh uh the first the first one do you mean or yeah i I broke the first blade i i I was trying to make one out of damascus and uh heat treating these blades like i don't normally do blades that large and so heat treating it was a kind of an issue for me and uh, i was getting uh, the the heat wasn't quite as evenly distributed across the blade as it should have been when i quenched it and it you know made it uh brittle so Mm. Eventually, you prevailed, and the the Forged in Fire judges began testing your macraca in quite a graphic way by using Mm -hmm. it on a ballistic dummy, a fake torso that has organs, bones, and blood. This is one of the lightest swords I've ever picked up. Your tip over here was so sharp that it went through and broke some bones. Your edge of the inside curve allowed me to lacerate deep into his bowels right here. But the most important thing, it will kill. Ugh. Um, and the testing finished with a mock beheading using watermelons. Craig, your macraca sliced through the melons handily, giving you the win. You use modern tools and machines to make your blades, yet the macraca originated hundreds of years ago. Do you ever wonder at how they were able to make these weapons with, without all this equipment? Oh, Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't really wonder. I, I, you know, you can kind of guess. I mean, it, uh, these are things like you say it so many years ago, but these things were handed down over time, uh, and these these weapons were actually used in battle, so they were tested, and uh, that information is it was kind of like an evolution for them, you know, and they're able to do it with simple tools. <laughs> and the the challenge that we have when we try to make it is we don't have that information that they had. It wasn't handed down by my dad to me or grandfather or whoever, you know, I'm just guessing, but it, you know, that type of situation. So Craig, if that makes sense. Thanks so much for being with us. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Metalsmith and blade maker Craig Barr owns and runs Deer Mountain Forge in Cotopaxi. He recently won an episode of the History Channel's Forged in Fire. We've posted a video of Barr testing the sharpness of one of his tomahawks at cprnews.org. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. Our next guest 
hated poetry as a kid growing up in Guam. Now he's reciting poems in front of live audiences, including a big one at the U.N. And here he is at our microphone. I've never felt like less of an American than when I finally moved to Colorado. My Uber driver asked why I spoke such perfect English. My neighbor asked if I was allowed to work in the U.S. And the girl down the block said, wow, you look nothing like how I imagined. John Sarmiento, also known as Meta, is here with us. In his native Guam, he helped build a slam poetry scene. He moved to Denver a year ago, drawn by the big performance poetry opportunities. And he'll perform at TEDx Mile High this weekend. And John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You wrote this poem um, Mm -hmm. that you just read after coming to Colorado. Was there something about this state in particular that made you feel like an outsider? Um. Well, I mean, Colorado is predominantly white as far as demographics right. go. And so I was raised in a Pacific island where white was the minority and raised with a bunch of colored folks, right? So being in Colorado definitely made me realize, um, like, I think it was for the first time me really feeling like a person of color hmm. in any, any any given place. So I think that's what sort of sparked the poem in general. Did it make you want to leave? Oh, no, definitely not. I mean, I knew what I was getting into. I was like, okay, I I know the demographics of Colorado. And like, I think I'm prepared, you know, mentally and emotionally to make that cultural shift. So definitely not. I was like, that's cool. I'll deal with it. (laughs) Take me back to high school when you first heard about performance or slam poetry. Yeah. How did you get introduced to it? So I was sitting in my chemistry class and my teacher busts through the door and she's like, hey, we need John. I need him to go to a, a presentation. I was like, what kind of presentation is this? And so she was telling my um, teacher at the time that there was a poetry presentation that I needed to go see. And she knew that I hated poetry. So I was like, why are you taking me to this? You know, I hate poetry. So she took me down and yeah, sure enough, there was a poetry presentation unlike anything I've ever seen before. What was it about slam poetry that spoke to you so much? I think it was its clarity of emotion and like the intent of the message. Because I was so used to reading poems um, right for school that was like just so confusing and just so um, cryptic. And we always had to deconstruct the ideas and have long discussions about it, which isn't bad because I love critical thinking. But that's the reason why I never gravitated toward writing it, because I didn't know how to like completely hide things in that way. But with Slam, the, when I first experienced Slam, I was just blown away because there was such clarity and not obviousness, but just clarity to what the meaning is of this poem. And so I was able to connect to it on like a very visceral level, which poems in the past have never been able to do for me. Can you give me an example of that clarity? Yeah. Um, so... One of the poets is a is an, a teacher, um, and so he talked about like his students and how he has so much faith in his students, and that his student was going through a lot of stuff, a lot of difficult struggles, but he was there as a teacher to help him. Right? Like I've never had a teacher talk about any student ever like that in my life. So I was sitting there like, wow, I wish this dude was my teacher. Like, <laughs> right. um, so like that's an example. Just being able to latch on to a very clear message and feel it and connect to it. I understand leading up to your introduction to slam poetry, you had gotten involved with a gang in Guam. Yeah. How did that happen? 
Um, so my older brother had left to the military. Uh, my sister had left for educational purposes. So I was like left alone to my own devices, really no real positive role models in the house. So I decided, man, I'm just going to hang out with the homies from the Ville, you know. And so I just started hanging out with them and started um, sort of getting into like really negative behavior, like self-destructive behavior, like substance abuse, um, things like that. And so I got jumped in, I got initiated in, and I started rolling with them. I started selling for the gang, um, like slanging on campus and all of that stuff. Mm. So it was really rough. Like, it's a long, long story. But um, long story short, I just got caught up in really bad decisions, um, thinking that this was the only thing I could do. And I think at at the end of it, I was just really looking for a, a sense of belonging, and I think like gangs and the idea of a brotherhood was really attractive to to me at that time to any young boy who's looking for the same thing, so, right? Especially yeah. when your siblings had left, right? Exactly. So, what was the moment when you decided that that wasn't a lifestyle you wanted to live? Yeah. So, the proliferation of like firearms in Guam isn't so rampant. So gang violence in Guam looks a lot different from gang violence in, let's say, L.A. or Chicago. Um, So you don't see a lot of people running around with guns. So every time we got into, like, big fights or big riots, we'd roll up with, like, bats and crowbars and chains and stuff Mm. like that. Um, So there was one night when we got into a riot with a rival gang, and um, I... I had heard stories about this rival gang. Like, my parents had even warned me about these people. And so I had asked, like, a couple of my OGs, like, yo, what if they bring a gun? Because I've heard, like, they got guns. And my OGs were just like, oh, they're not going to use it. If they bring it, they won't use it. They'll just, like, pop a few rounds off in the air. And so I believed them. But come to find, they did bring their thirty-eight to the riot. And they didn't just pop off in the air. They actually shot at us. Mm. And so I was standing next to the homie who got popped, like shoulder to shoulder with him. And so when he got clipped um, in his shoulder area between like his blade and collarbone, he dropped, bleeding, screaming. And yeah, I kind of just freaked out. And I realized that yeah, I almost died tonight (laughs) after Mm. everything. And I realized that I have so much more to live for, like, dying for this for almost no reason at all except this idea of loyalty right and i got love for the homies like they taught me so much about like myself and all of those experiences i don't regret any of it but yeah just realizing that i wanted a lot more for myself and not just to be this awesome gangster kind of guy you know like i wanted a lot more i wanted to do a lot more with my life and offer the world a lot more it was around that time that you started writing poetry and getting involved with a youth slam poetry group. Uh, what kind of influence, if any, did all of that have on your decision to break from the gang? Um, I think that poetry and then later on rap kind of really it gave me a new life. Like a lot of people say, yeah, writing saved my life. But for me, it didn't necessarily save it. Like it just gave me a new one. It gave me, like, new hopes and new aspirations. And so I had known that I always wanted to be a writer since I was younger. Like, since the sixth grade, I wanted to be a writer. But at that time, I wanted to be a short story writer because, again, I I hated poetry. Um, But then after realizing, like, hey, I'm actually pretty good at poetry and, like, I think I could do this, um, I shifted towards that. And so I think one of the most influential aspects of that experience early on was that I started visiting high schools as a graduate, as a high school graduate, um, 
and like talking with students and telling them my story and telling you this almost exact telling them this exact story right here mm. about all this crazy stuff that I've been through and realizing that I can actually have a positive effect on young people through poetry and rap and just performance and being in a room with them and just talking open and honestly about everything um and i think that was like one of the biggest influences for me um with shifting my life this is colorado matters from cpr news i'm speaking with john sarmiento the slam poet grew up on the island of guam and moved to denver a year ago drawn in part by the slam poetry scene here he is known on stage as Meta, and he'll speak at TEDx Mile High this weekend in Denver. You took on that stage name, Meta, around 2011. What's the story behind that? <laughs> it's a really funny story. So I got off stage after a performance one night, and this dude comes up to me, and he, like, wraps his arm around me, puts me almost in a headlock, and he's just like, bro, you got the most vivid metaphors. And I'm like, what? And we're, it was at a... The show was at a bar, right? So you can imagine like how we're feeling that night and stuff. And I was just so confused for a minute. And I was like, what are you saying, dude? What is a metaphors? And I realized like, oh, you're trying to say metaphor as in plural, like metaphors. Mm-hmm. But he was just so like drunk that night that he was just metaphors, metaphors. And I was like, bro, that's a really cool nickname. Can I use that? He's like, yeah, bro, just give me credit. This is the only way I can give him credit. I don't remember his face. <laughs> I don't remember his name. <laughs> Um, so I was running with metaphors for a, a couple of years until I decided that it just felt a little, I don't know, gimmicky and a little kitty. And so I, I removed the force, but the, the force is always with me. Um, and I just started running with meta. In 2015, you were one of the four winners in the Spoken Word for the World Contest. You entered the competition with this poem called Island Haze, and we're going to play it. In Guam harbors, you don't ever hear foghorns. But lately, clouds have been clinging too closely to shorelines and branches. There's some type of fog in our jungles. It floated from across the water. It's embraced our mountainsides. And although this haze is a stunning visitor, I know that the ghostly cloak is covering a distant decay. I understand this poem is about globalization, about the haze Mm -hmm. that blankets Guam coming from fires in Indonesia, Mm -hmm. and that haze is making people sick. Mm -hmm. I imagine you don't meet a lot of people who've been to Guam. What's it like to try to describe the place when you come, where you come from, for people who may have never go there and have never been there? For sure. I I tell them that there are only two seasons on Guam. There's mango season or not mango season, <laughs> and that it's really a, it's a tropical paradise, but it has a, a lot of its own issues to solve as well, especially environmentally and politically. Uh, we're an unincorporated territory, so our political status affects us a lot on so many levels. Um, but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. It's I think the best way I can describe it is it's like jumping almost into a time machine and going back like maybe 15, 20 years. So whatever you think... Um, Hawaii was 15, 20 years ago. That's kind of where Guam is as far as like development goes and things like that. And just to wrap up, winning this contest gave you the chance to perform in Paris at a United Nations yes. conference on climate change. What was it like to have that audience? It was amazing. The poets that I was uh, with are also just such strong, powerful women, and I learned so much from them. And I think the most amazing thing about having that audience was that 
we got to bring stories that humanize the idea of climate change. So in this mess of scientific jargon, we were able to bring a very human component to the discussion. John, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Slam poet John Meta Sarmiento. He speaks at TEDx Mile High in Denver this weekend. You can watch videos of him performing at cprnews.org. That's our show for today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.